Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Hi, I'm Mike Connell, and welcome to another episode of the AAEP Practice Life Podcast. And today we are continuing on with our series of what makes equine practice great, or just let's talk about, let's celebrate that uh, equine practice is pretty exceptional. Joined by three guests tonight, ranging all across the United States, we'll start on the East Coast, close to where I'm at. Um, Dorothy Gilmore, welcome. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you having me. And moving further west, we'll stop in Lexington and meet Dr. Jeremy Shaba from uh, Haggards. Hello, hello. I'm excited to talk with you guys. And then we will butt up against the Rockies and meet Dr. Chelsea Ludke from uh, North Denver. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So this is, I'm really looking forward to this. So Dorothy, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and, and how you ended up where you are right now in uh, upstate New York. That's a bit of a long story, and I'll try and keep it relatively short. I graduated in uh, Berlin, Germany, and I'm German still, passport-carrying German. Came to Cornell University to do some post-grad work and then moved my way through some research positions into private practice up here. And at the time, I had always wanted to be an equine veterinarian, but actually vet school ruined that for me. That was just... Uh, some character flaws in a lot of the horse people that I was not very fond of. So I went food animal and I ended up in a mixed large animal practice and rediscovered my passion for horses and for equine medicine. So I've sort of gone 360 degrees and I'm very, very happy. Great. And yeah, we will dig into that later on. I want to understand how you, what it allowed you to rediscover your passion. Jeremy, how did you, how, how have you gotten here? I mean, you're a relatively recent grad. Yeah, I'm originally from Michigan, and I went to vet school at the Ontario Veterinary College, uh, just outside Toronto. And then after vet school, I came down to Lexington to do a a one-year field care internship after not having any experience in the thoroughbred industry or racing or anything. And I have been here ever since. So I graduated in 2015, and so five-year anniversary. And it was a vintage year. Two of your classmates work with me, and it's... It's a great year. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Chelsea, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm originally from uh, Colorado, or at least went to high school here, and then went to Colorado State University and graduated in 2011. I uh, did a one-year internship in Northern Virginia at the Piedmont Equine Practice. Uh, I've kind of always known that I wanted to do equine medicine. I guess I just, you know, like horse crazy growing up to a family that had no understanding of that, um, but were supportive of it. So I have worked my way back to Denver, uh, Colorado, just by way of a couple associate positions that were great, um, great learning and a lot of experience. And then my husband and I now operate our own practice out of North Denver, and he's an equine, equine veterinarian as well. Excellent. That's kind of a little bit like my story too. My wife and I started our practice too. So if you can work and live together and successfully, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So (laughs) both days. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Dorothy, um, did you have a horse background before you got into equine practice? 
Yeah, I was same as Chelsea. I was the horse crazy girl with um, nobody in the family quite knowing where I picked up that gene. I always wanted to be a veterinarian and it was just went totally unsaid that it was going to be a horse vet. I was there's no no doubt about that. You know, road horses being from Germany, all English. And that's how I got into horses. And how about yourself, Jeremy? Um, I started taking horseback riding lessons when I was probably eight or nine. And I got quite a bit of horse experience at a summer camp I worked at as a riding instructor. And then I ended up running their ranch program. And then in undergrad, I did quite a bit of uh, equine research and uh, upper airway research. And then that kind of continued through vet school. And I had some really good mentors that kind of pushed me along and encouraged me towards the equine vet profession. Excellent. So, uh, Dorothy, there's something you said in your introduction that you, you rediscovered your passion for equine practice. And, and I want to dig into that a little bit because I think a lot of people go into equine practice with eyes wide open. We're all enthusiastic. And then, yeah, we, we get speed bumps, roadblocks on the way. Some of us lose it. And uh, what what did you do? What what happened to rediscover your passion? Well, I I landed in an area of the country that my dairy vet mentor, when he visited me here, called 25 Years Behind the Times. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's it or not, but it it's the people that initially turned me off from equine medicine. You know, there's sort of the snotty, arrogant treatment that some of us students got, um, the ones who didn't have their own horses and weren't, you know, involved enough. And then I came here and the clients were just so thankful to have somebody who had horse experience, even though medically I was, you know, maybe certainly not the most well-trained, but I know how to handle a horse. I know how to, you know, walk a horse and pick up a foot. And I, I know how idiosyncratic they can be at times. And the clients just love that. That, that just made me feel like this is what I need to do. This is where I belong. These are all horse people, and that's I want to be part of that. And I know when um, and I don't know if Jeremy, Jeremy and I went to the same uh, vet school, and boy, we got a lot of pushback in terms of going into equine practice. As soon as you say you're going to go into equine practice, I had so many clinicians and professors saying you don't want to go into equine practice. Horse people are crazy; it's terrible. You you don't need to do this. Uh, did anybody else encounter that? Jeremy, did you get that? I don't think I experienced that. I had quite a, a good group of of classmates that were all pretty positive and. The professors at the time that I that we were being taught by seemed to be pretty positive, so I was grateful for that. How about you, Chelsea? Did, did you come across that, or maybe it's just me, and maybe I got to look at myself? No, I did to a degree. Um, definitely, people, yeah, saying it'd be easier to go small animal. I know in in my graduating class at CSU, there was I was one of twenty seven that wanted to go into equine practice, and wow, and probably probably, and that was you know obviously very odd for an average year. Um, it was usually about 10 students. So I ha we had a lot of common interests. And I would say about half of those students actually went on to do equine residencies or specialty practices, uh, which is, is really pretty cool. And most of them are still practicing, which is That's nice. wonderful. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I mean, we all sort of thought that we wanted to go into equine practice. You know, you start practice. Uh, we'll start with you, Dorothy. When did you know that you made the right choice to be an equine vet? I know you touched a little bit upon it, but I mean, at some point, did you have that eureka moment like, this is where I want to be? Well, it's kind of hard to say. It's just 
No, there was never a eureka moment for me. It was I I sort of gradually moved into that. I was working, like I said, for a mixed large animal practice. And um, after six years of having a provisional license in New York State, my green card still was not done. And I had to leave the practice because I couldn't get my license renewed. So I took a year off and played secretary at a local nonprofit. That was fun. (laughs) And then, of course, that gave me a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do once I was licensed again. And there was... I had people ask me, oh, so you're going to do cows again and stuff. Nope, nope, I'm going to do horses and that's all I do. And I want to be the best that I can possibly be at that. So it was kind of more gradual progression, I think, for me. Yeah. How about yourself, uh, Jeremy? I think in this first five years of practice, I've been given a lot of really neat opportunities to travel uh, and practice veterinary medicine around the world. And I had never really expected that to be an op- a thing that would I'd be fortunate enough to do or have the opportunity to do. And as soon as I started traveling and, and uh, I did a couple of breeding seasons in New Zealand, I was like, this is really, really cool. And this was what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. We, it's amazing. I, you know, the opportunities that show up from being, uh, being a veterinarian, but an equine practice, because we have such, I think a mobile population that moves around and you do get exposed to so much. Yeah. That's fascinating. I forgot you went to New Zealand. That's cool. How about yourself, Chelsea? Uh, it was probably a yeah less like Eureka moment and more just a culmination of factors. Uh, we did in Wisconsin, my husband and I worked there for three years and it was a great clinic. Um, we did mixed large animal and I did some small animal. Um, and so when we got to move back to Colorado and practice equine only, it was, it just felt like, you know, a good pair of shoes. Like you knew that things were right because it felt good. So I love being out in the truck and, and going to places and, I tend to be at least attract clients that are similar to me and it's kind of like being with friends most of the day. Right. So, um, so it's quite fun for me. We're talking and the, the theme of this podcast is talking about how great equine practice is, but it's, evol- it's also a very challenging part of veterinary medicine. And so uh, we'll go back and start at the beginning with you, Dorothy, in terms of, you know, what have been some of the biggest challenges in your career in equine practice? I will say that the most challenging ones are tough cases that you end up losing and the babies in particular. They just about kill me every time. I had a few this year that for various reasons, you know, I try to get as much support from colleagues and mentors and friends as I can because I am a solo practitioner. And, you know, and I'm very lucky to have people who are willing to you know, support me. And, and then when it doesn't work out in the end, it's just the foals they get me. That's, that's the hardest always has been. Right. Now, one of the things that you always hear about, and I think, you know, somebody mentioned earlier is that you get the sense that, you know, the customers, horse people are crazy and they're more challenging. Uh, Is that something, I mean, is, has that been a challenge for you, Dorothy? Is, Is that something that is harder to deal with than maybe another t- part of that medicine, you think? No, honestly, I really don't think so, at least not where I live. Um, now, that said, I am, A, in a position where there is not a ton of um, competition up here, so I can sort of pick and choose my clients a little bit. You know, if somebody gets too obnoxious for me, then I'll ask them to go elsewhere. Right. You know, I have probably a few clients who are, maybe high maintenance, but I have learned that one of the things that I think 
course, people get a bad rep for noticing things about their animals, you know? So I have some clients that are more perceptive of something's being off. The other day I had a client text me because her mini pony had only pooped twice instead of four times over the past 12 hours. And so a lot of people go like, oh, that's just stupid. And I'm going like, no, that's, that's really very observant. And so I told her, I said, keep an eye on her, do this, do that. And she was like, okay. And then six hours later, she texted me and said, oh, we had more poop. We're good. I, right. I, I don't mind n having people tell me ahead of time that I might end up having to look at a colic that afternoon. I don't know. Yeah. How about yourself, Jeremy? What's your been experience like? What's been what's been challenging to you as you're getting into equine practice and getting your legs underneath you, so to speak? I think being a repro vet, the the work that I do is super seasonal. So our work our work life balance is highly dependent on the type of the year. So during you know for the first five or six months of the year, I work seven days a week and I'm on call twenty four seven, and then from from July until the end of the year, I work five days a week. And some of those days might be just a couple hours a day. And I'm on call a lot less than I am during the breeding season. So you have to have a certain sort of toughness to be able to make it through the breeding season, working every day and being on call as much as we are. Yeah. It yeah it's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find your clients are exceptionally challenging? Cause that's one, again, when I talk to people and even younger grads now, they're like, Oh, horse people are crazy. They're so tough. I don't want to deal with them. I definitely work with a different type of horse client because most of the farms I work with are thoroughbred breeding farms and it's a business for them. So the they are super professional. They know how to do almost everything that I would ask them to do. If things don't go the way they're supposed to go or if a horse needs to go to the clinic, it's not really a long decision. It just happens and things, things that need to get done, get done. So I think I'm really lucky in, in that I get to work with clients like that. Now, there are some tough personalities that I have to work with. But by and large, I uh, my clientele is, is pretty great. Okay, cool. And and how about yourself, Chelsea? I mean, what have been the the challenges in, in developing your practice? Yeah, I think it. I don't know. There just seems to be a lot of drama sometimes. I I mm -hmm. tend to work on a lot of English sport horses, and namely dressage, um, dressage horses, and those clients obviously can require more more hand holding. But I guess I have a little bit of a different perspective because I can fall into that same category at times with my own horses that I understand the importance of getting something done quickly. And, and again, I have learned I'm nine years out and I'm just starting to learn this, but the, how to lay down boundaries as Dorothy said, and if people are getting too overzealous in their requests or expect expectations of me, then I'm not, you know, in, in my practice life right now, I can make that decision to help them find someone else or, mm. or send them a letter. So I think that's, I'm not afraid to do that anymore. And it's definitely made my um, appreciation of good clients <laughs> even higher. Boy, I think you touched upon something really important because I, you know, I think, I don't think horse people are any different from others, but you know, because we are so much more available, often they have ourselves and they can text us. And I think what you just said about putting up boundaries is great advice for any new practitioners or anybody that want gets, wants to get into equine practice. It's okay to say, no, you're not the right client for me. I think those kind of, I think that's in terms of any time, any kind of equine practice, they can just be so draining on you. 
I want to come back to something that Jeremy said, and I think, you know, uh, you know, Dorothy, you're a solo practitioner, Chelsea, it's just your husband and yourself. The hours are long in equine practice. And so, I mean, how, how does that factor into the equation of, you know, having a, a satisfying professional life, but also having a life outside of it? We'll start with you, Dorothy. Well, I, I'm in sort of a, a strange position because when I, when I started the clinic, not the practice, but when we built the clinic, my husband was still alive and he has since passed away. And so I don't have the, um, I don't have the support, of course, of a partner at this point, but I also don't have the, the requirements that it takes to keep a partnership going. Right. So there's, there's that I don't have children. So I'm probably in that sense, a little spoiled with regards to you know, if I get an easy day, like Jeremy said, you know, I get one of those two hour days, I just do whatever the heck I want. And it, you know, it, that recharges me. So I'm, I'm always in awe of colleagues who, you know, raise three children while running the solar practice. And I'm just like, how do you do this? I mean, I can sometimes barely keep up with the workload. And yes, that said, I think this ties back into what Chelsea also mentioned about setting boundaries a few weekends ago, I um, I took my kayak and I went up into the mountains because winter is going to be here shortly. And I went into the Adirondacks and I kayaked for a few hours the afternoon. And I was not going to be available to my clients. So I have a friend who, you know, will cover for me for a couple hours here and there. And I'd asked her, I said, when she said, yeah, that's all right. But in the end, I kind of figure that if I end up burning out, I'm a whole lot less useful to my clients than I am if I'm AWOL for, you know, four hours on a Sunday afternoon. Absolutely. For sure. And, and how about yourself, Chelsea? I have figured out, and this is because I now, you know, partner with my husband. I, we had two positions, associate positions at different clinics, and I wouldn't have been able to do this, but we do have two young boys. They're two and four years old. And I kind of found out in the time from both maternity leaves, which short, um, but I, but I'm not a stay at home parent <laughs> um, capability wise. And so I have figured out that three days, three full days a week of work and then four days of being a mom full time is great for me. And so I will schedule calls on the, you know, Tuesday, Thursday that I'm not technically working if there's stuff I can bring the kids to. And I think it's good for them as well. I don't know. I think I'm able to balance it because I can, I can, turn away clients or turn away appointments. I think as an associate, that would be much, much harder to do. Um, and I'm much happier with that balance because I'm, you know, before kids and when we were junior associates, we were working our, you know, tail ends off all the time. And and I could see how that could lead to burnout for sure. Well, let's continue off that things. I think you touched upon something is that, you know, as an associate, you do have a lot less control. And so we're, you know, I think the, the Jeremy's an associate here and, you know, it's a pretty rigorous schedule you have for half of the year. So if you were going to advise somebody who's, you know, maybe a junior or senior in vet school or just starting off in practice, I'll go with you, Chelsea. I mean, what advice would you give them to make sure they can you know, they're not burning themselves out, that they can have a professional, some professional satisfaction out of what they're doing. That's a tough one. Cause I think, I guess in my experience, I, I think it's really important to be, you know, if you can do an internship with equine practice, that's super helpful, or at least it was for me. And then I think it's really important to get the perspective of working at a, 
you know, mid-sized clinic or large clinic, you just learn so much more and quickly. But I think there are, there's more movement now towards family-oriented practices. I think if you can find an associate position that aligns with your family values and, you know, even without kids yet, just the work-life balance. I mean, everybody needs hobbies and you need to enjoy those. And, and that's why we work. So work to live, not live to work. So I think if you can find it, it's probably practice selection. If you can figure that out on a working interview and just with, you know, I probably in some of the mistakes we've made is, is not talking to enough of the past associates at clinics, you know, not that you want to spread bad bad news and all that, but I think um, really researching the clinic you're looking at, you know, accepting a position to would be my biggest advice for somebody graduating. Yeah. And I think particularly now, because there is, you know, in any species, there's a real shortage of vets. And I think younger grads, younger associates can be a little choosier than maybe they, you know, 10 years ago or before the recession, uh, because, you know, as you, as you're saying, Chelsea, you, you can pick the practice that sort of fits your values and what you want out of life. Jeremy, what kind of advice do you give? I said, you're a five-year anniversary, as you said, and yeah, you're, you're part of a very established, the longest established practice. What kind of recommendations or suggestions would you give to a young uh, grad or new vet? Well, I think when the new grads come out, they have this mentality that they can never say, well, at least in my, the new grads that I've seen at our practice have this mentality that they can't say no, that they should do work on their time off, that they should answer their phone when they're not on call. And uh, we try to take the older associates, try to take the new associates out for dinner and just kind of explain to them that that their quality of life is important. And, and by doing those things and working nonstop, they're going to burn out really, really fast. And uh, some of them get it and some of them still work 24-7 nonstop and answer their phone all the time. But I think just letting them know that it's okay to set boundaries and it's okay to take care of yourself because the only person that's going to look out for you is you. And so right. if they're waiting for somebody else to tell you to take some time off or for somebody else to ask if you're okay, you've waited too long and you should be thinking about that yourself first. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think it really highlights that practice owners, senior vets, we have a great responsibility to, to demonstrate, to show, to to live to the to the younger associates that, you know, life is just not running after clients and their horses. I think that's a really key message. I'm glad you brought that up, Jeremy. Uh, how about yourself, Dorothy, in terms of what would you recommend to a young grad in terms of making sure they get into a practice and they can get the most out of this profession? I don't think that I have anything else to to add to what Chelsea and Jeremy said. I think they're spot on. I mean, you know, Chelsea, you're right. We we work to live, not the other way around. And and Jeremy, I think that's awesome that in your practice, the the older, you know, more senior associates take the younger associates out and go like, take a break, take a breather. I think that's. Yeah, I think that could be the subtitle to this podcast is that we work to live and not the other way around. And it's such a <laughs> it's such an opposite attitude of what used to be in this profession, for sure. Yeah. And even when tell, meeting with those young associates and explaining to them about work-life balance and taking care of themselves, it still takes time for them to figure out how to do that. Because I think there's just a lot of guilt and they feel, I, I don't know where the external pressure comes from. Maybe they think they have to earn their way. And that's kind of how the mentality used to be, but I think it's definitely changing. And if, if we want to keep the young 
the young grads in practice. That's something we really need to stress on. Yep. Well, I think part of it, and this is just my theory on it, it's just, you know, the, the kind of people that are attracted to veterinary practice and you know, maybe to equine practices that we are overachiever, we're people pleasers, and it's sometimes hard to just say no. We don't want to let people down. So I, as, so as I said, as I said, if you if senior vets can model like, hey, it's okay to say no and take care of yourself, boy, that's a huge advantage. And the problem we have is a lot of our senior vets still work the way we're telling the younger vets not to work. <laughs> so we have a lot of vets that are available 24-7, work on their work every day of the week, don't take any time off. So it's hard for them to see this new way when we have quite a few vets that are enjoy the old way and their whole life is their work and they don't want it to be any different. Yeah. I also don't know if it's still that way, but when I was at Cornell, I, I, you know, remember seeing the residents in the, I was, I was an ambulatory intern, so I was a little outside, but I saw the, the in-house residents, the medicine and surgery residents just slave away and being made kind of like fun of almost by some of the senior clinicians that they were having literally having like nervous breakdowns after yeah. 96 hours of continuous duty and I'm like where is that fun you know so I don't know if students still see that these days because that is damaging you know yeah that's not a good example for sure last question and, and this is one of my favorite questions and that is and we'll start with you Chelsea what was your best day or moment in practice that you were just like, if every day was like this, it would just be perfect. <laughs> this, I mean, talking about work-life balance of, I don't know, maybe eight weeks ago on a Sunday, I had a, one of my best clients and a really great person to um, fly me on her private jet to go do a pre-purchase. And so it was, oh. I had never been on a private jet, uh, you know, stuff just completely outside of my, normal day-to-day life and the horse was great and we threw the extra equipment you know I know as Jeremy said a lot of vets travel and do work but that was kind of a first for me and and she ended up buying the horse and and it you know it's quite nice and it worked out it was just kind of fun to to jet set for a little bit that reminds me once when before the uh, 2008 Olympics, I was the vet for one of the horses and it was at Spruce Meadows in Calgary. And they had me fly out to Calgary in the morning to do a once over on the horse before it flew to uh, China to for Hong Kong. And I was wow. literally with the horse for an hour. And then I was like, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it's not bad, not bad at all. <laughs> Jeremy, how about yourself? What was your best day or moment in practice that made you go, this is all worthwhile? Uh, Probably getting to do two breeding seasons in New Zealand, having somebody want you to come work for them because they need the help and being able to help serve their clients. And then, you know, and and I not only got to work in New Zealand, but I got to travel the entire country and see a part of the world on, on somebody else's dime that I never would have gotten to before, which is super incredible. Yeah, and I start, we're starting to see a theme here because everybody has been able to travel because of it, and Dorothy has been coming to the United States from Germany. So, yes, this profession can surprise us at where it takes us. So, Dorothy, uh, last word is yours. What's been your best moment that made you say equine practice is where I was, where I needed to be? Oh, man. Um, actually, I'm, I'm a lot more like, I guess, bread and butter. I have these moments frequently when I do something that is new to me and that I 
I'm hesitant to do because I kind of have imposter syndrome. Sometimes I didn't do that equine residency and internship and, and it works. And, you know, the horse, either I, I get the right diagnosis that just tickles me pink or the horse, you know, improves and that makes me super happy. So those, those are the, the daily moments, not daily maybe, but they happen frequently and I just love it. And it, it makes me want to get better and learn more and do more cool things. And so that's kind of what, what, what just tickles me. As you're saying that I'm actually smiling because I can feel your enthusiasm. I'm like, that's, that's, that's what practice should be all about right. when you're discovering new things and impressing yourself. I don't have the big clients who have the, the private jets and, and that's okay. <laughs> I have some very nice ones, but <laughs> But you know what I learned a lesson. So before I was a vet, I was a farrier. I remember talking to a farrier who was the farrier for a lot of the top show jumpers in the world. And I can't name names, but this guy was it. And I remember we were sitting down at some farrier meeting and I had just come from trimming a pony and like just a knee deep manure, just uh. a horrible situation. I was just like God, I hate this kind of work. I wish I could work on nice barns and nice show horses like you do. And he's like, you know what? He goes, I prefer those clients because they are much more appreciative than any show horse trainer. Uh, he goes, I've been to the Olympics. I've been everywhere. And those backyard ponies of people that appreciate what you're doing, yes. that that's more fun than seeing somebody win the Olympics. That's and awesome. I was like, oh, okay. And, and, and what was true is that he actually lived it. And I, I saw him and, you know, we became good friends. And so I think that's a good word of advice because I see too many young associates are coming out or young vets and they just want to work on the superstar horses and be a top end show, show horse vet. And I'm like, you know what? Those backyard, that's a lot of fun too. Yeah, for sure. Last words of advice or, you know, just any last words there, Chelsea, anything you want to say to the people that are listening to you about the value of being an equine practice? I guess I would just encourage people into it. If you can find a good practice to work for and get some experience under, you know, under your belt and then um, keep going with it. I mean, whether you stay an associate or open your own practice, I, even as an associate, I thought it was really cool that, you know, usually you get to be good friends with your technician and, and you get to be, you know, out at beautiful farms and driving and, you know, just seeing a lot of things and you're flexible. So I think, I think there's a lot of aspects to equine practice that are really cool. Absolutely. How about yourself, Jeremy? I think there's a lot of practices that are looking for equine vets at the moment. So it's super important to make sure that wherever you end up is a good fit for you, that you get along with the people that you enjoy the area that you'd be living in. And um, even if it doesn't end up working out, it's important that you spend time at that clinic before you go there. And uh, you can always gain, I mean, you gain experience, you gain life experiences from every job you work and just hang in there and, and there's lots of opportunities out there for you. That's wonderful. And yourself, Dorothy? I would agree with Jeremy and then take it one step further. If it doesn't work out, don't leave equine medicine. Just leave that practice that didn't work out. It's there there are as many different practices out there as there are practice owners and everybody has their own set of values and and deals with employees differently on that note i would like to thank the three of you this is uh, i've learned some things and uh as i said i've been listening to it and i've got a smile on my face for some of these stories so i hope everybody who's listening has that same smile thank you very much 
For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.